This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. Seven. At last. After three days of variable winds, we have caught the northeast trades. I came on deck after a good night's rest, in spite of my poor knee, to find the ghost foaming along, wing and wing, and every sail drawing except the jibs, with a fresh breeze astern. Oh, the wonder of the great trade wind! All day we sailed, and all night, and the next day, and the next, day after day the wind always astern and blowing steadily and strong. The schooner sailed herself. There was no pulling and hauling on sheets and tackles, no shifting of topsails, no work at all for the sailors to do, except to steer. At night, when the sun went down, the sheets were slackened. In the morning, when they yielded up the damp of the dew and relaxed, they were pulled tight again, and that was all. Ten knots, twelve knots, eleven knots, varying from time to time, is the speed we are making. And ever out of the northeast the brave wind blows, driving us on our course two hundred and fifty miles between the dawns. It saddens me, and it gladdens me, the gate with which we are leaving San Francisco behind, and with which we are foaming down upon the tropics. Each day grows perceptibly warmer. In the second dog watch, the sailors come on deck, stripped, and heap buckets of water upon one another from overside. Flying fish are beginning to be seen, and during the night, the watch above scrambles over the deck in pursuit of those that fall aboard. In the morning, Thomas Mugridge, being duly bribed, the galley is pleasantly a reek with the odor of their frying, 
while dolphin meat is served fore and aft on such occasions as Johnson catches the blazing beauties from the bowsprit end. Johnson seems to spend all his spare time there, or aloft at the cross trees, watching the ghost cleaving the water under press of sail. There is passion, adoration in his eyes, and he goes about in a sort of trance, gazing in ecstasy at the swelling sails, the foaming wake, and the heave and the run of her over the liquid mountains that are moving with us in stately procession. The days and nights are all a wonder and a wild delight, and though I have little time for my dreary work, I steal odd moments to gaze and gaze at the unending glory of what I never dreamed the world possessed. Above, the sky is stainless blue. Blue is the sea itself, which under the forefoot is of the color and sheen of azure satin. All around the horizon are pale fleecy clouds, never changing, never moving, like a silver setting for the flawless turquoise sky. I do not forget one night, when I should have been asleep, of lying on the forecastle head and gazing down at the spectral ripple of foam thrust aside by the ghost's forefoot. It sounded like the gurgling of a brook over mossy stones in some quiet dell, and the crooning song of it lured me away and out of myself, till I was no longer Hump the Cabin Boy, nor Van Waden, the man who had dreamed away thirty-five years among books. But a voice behind me, the unmistakable voice of Wolf Larsen, strong with the invincible certitude of the man, and mellow with appreciation of the words he was quoting, aroused me. Oh, the blazing tropic night, when the wake's a wealth of light that holds the hot sky tame, and the steady forefoot snores through the planet-powdered floors, where the scared whale flukes in flame. Her plates are scarred by the sun, dear lass, and her ropes are taut with the dew, for we're booming down on the old trail, our own trail, the out trail. We're sagging south on the long trail, the trail that is always new. Eh, help? How's it strike you? He asked, after the due pause which words and setting demanded. I looked into his face. It was aglow with light, as the sea itself, and the eyes were flashing in the starshine. It strikes me as remarkable, to say the least, that you should show enthusiasm, I answered coldly. Why, man, it's living, it's life, he cried which is a cheap thing and without value. I flung his words at him. He laughed, and it was the first time I had heard honest mirth in his voice. Ah, I cannot get you to understand, cannot drive it into your head what a thing this life is. Of course, life is valueless except to itself. And I can tell you that my life is pretty valuable just now, to myself. It is beyond price, which you will acknowledge is a terrific overrating, but which I cannot help, for it is the life that's in me that makes the rating. He appeared waiting for the words with which to express the thought that was in him, and finally went on. Do you know, I am filled with a strange uplift. I feel as if time were echoing through me, as though all powers were mine. I know truth, divine good from evil, right from wrong. My vision is clear and far. I could almost believe in God, but... And his voice changed and the light went out of his face. What is this condition in which I find myself? This joy of living, this exaltation of life, this inspiration, I may well call it. It is what comes when there is nothing wrong with one's digestion, when his stomach is in trim and his appetite has an edge, and all goes well. It is the bribe for living, 
the champagne of the blood, the effervescence of the ferment, that makes some men think holy thoughts and other men to see God or to create him when they cannot see him. That is all, the drunkenness of life, the stirring and crawling of the yeast, the babbling of the life that is insane with consciousness that is alive. And bah, tomorrow I shall pay for it as the drunkard pays. I shall know that I must die, at sea most likely, cease crawling of myself to be all a crawl with the corruption of the sea, to be fed upon, to be carrying, to yield up all the strength and movement of my muscles that it may become strength and movement in fin and scale and the guts of fishes. Bah, and bah again. The champagne is already flat. The sparkle and bubble has gone out and it is a tasteless drink. He left me as suddenly as he had come springing to the deck with the weight and softness of a tiger. The ghost plowed on her way. I noted the gurgling forefoot was very like a snore, and as I listened to it, the effect of Wolf Larsen's swift rush from sublime exultation to despair slowly left me. Then some deep-water sailor from the waist of the ship lifted a rich tenor voice in the song of the trade wind. Oh, I am the wind, the seamen love, I am steady and strong and true. They follow my track by the clouds above, or the fathomless tropic blue. Through daylight and dark I follow the bark, I keep like a hound on her trail. I'm strongest at noon, yet under the moon I stiffen the bunt of her sail. End of chapter 7 The Sea Wolf by Jack London Chapter 8 Sometimes I think Wolf Larsen mad, or half mad at least, one of his strange moods and vagaries. At other times I take him for a great man, a genius who has never arrived. And finally, I am convinced that he is the perfect type of the primitive man, born a thousand years or generations too late, and an anachronism in this culminating century of civilization. He is certainly an individualist of the most pronounced type. Not only that, but he is very lonely. There is no congeniality between him and the rest of the men aboard ship. His tremendous virility and mental strength wall him apart. They are more like children to him, even the hunters, and as children he treats them, descending perforce to their level and playing with them as a man plays with puppies. Or else he probes them with the cruel hand of a vivisectionist, groping about in their mental processes and examining their souls as though to see of what soul stuff is made. I have seen him a score of times at table, insulting this hunter or that with cool and level eyes, and withal a certain air of interest pondering their actions or replies or petty rages with a curiosity almost laughable to me who stood onlooker and who understood. Concerning his own rages, I am convinced that they are not real, that they are sometimes experiments, but that in the main they are the habits of a pose or attitude he has seen fit to take towards his fellow men. I know, with the possible exception of the incident of the dead mate, that I have not seen him really angry, nor do I wish ever to see him in a genuine rage, when all the force of him is called into play. While on the question of vagaries, I shall tell what befell Thomas Mugridge in the cabin, and at the same time complete an incident upon which I have already touched once or twice. The twelve o'clock dinner was over one day, and I had finished putting the cabin in order, when Wolf Larsen and Thomas Mugridge descended the companion stairs. Though the cook had a cubbyhole of a stateroom, 
opening off from the cabin, in the cabin itself he had never dared to linger or to be seen, and he flitted to and fro once or twice a day, a timid specter. So, you know how to play nap? Wolf Larsen was saying in a pleased sort of voice. I might have guessed an Englishman would know. I learned it myself in English ships. Thomas Mugridge was beside himself, a blithering imbecile, so pleased was he at chumming thus with the captain. The little airs he put on and the painful striving to assume the easy carriage of a man born to a dignified place in life would have been sickening had they not been ludicrous. He quite ignored my presence, though I credited him with being simply unable to see me. His pale, wishy-washy eyes were swimming like lazy summer seas, though what blissful visions they beheld were beyond my imagination. Get the cards, hump, Wolf Larsen ordered, as they took seats at the table. And bring out the cigars and the whiskey you'll find in my berth. I returned with the articles in time to hear the cockney hinting broadly that there was a mystery about him, that he might be a gentleman's son gone wrong or something or other. Also, that he was a remittance man and was paid to keep away from England. Pied handsomely, sir, was the way he put it. Pied handsomely to sling my oak and keep slinging. I had brought the customary liquor glasses. But Wolf Larsen frowned, shook his head, and signaled with his hands for me to bring the tumblers. These he filled two-thirds full with undiluted whiskey. A gentleman's drink, quoth Thomas Mugridge, and they clinked their glasses to the glorious game of nap, lighted cigars, and fell to shuffling and dealing the cards. They played for money. They increased the amounts of the bets. They drank whiskey. They drank it neat, and I fetched more. I do not know whether Wolf Larsen cheated or not, a thing he was thoroughly capable of doing, but he won steadily. The cook made repeated journeys to his bunk for money. Each time he performed the journey with greater swagger, but he never brought more than a few dollars at a time. He grew maudlin, familiar, could hardly see the cards or sit upright. As a preliminary to another journey to his bunk, he hooked Wolf Larsen's buttonhole with a greasy forefinger and vacuously proclaimed and reiterated, I got money, I got money, I tell you, and I'm a gentleman's son. Wolf Larsen was unaffected by the drink, yet he drank glass for glass, and if anything, his glasses were full. There was no change in him. He did not appear even amused at the other's antics. In the end, with loud protestations that he could lose like a gentleman, the cook's last money was staked on the game and lost. Whereupon he leaned his head on his hands and wept. Wolf Larsen looked curiously at him, as though about to probe and vivisect him then changed his mind as from the foregone conclusion that there was nothing there to prove. Hump, he said to me, elaborately polite, kindly take Mr. Mugridge's arm and help him up on deck. He's not feeling very well. And tell Johnson to douse him with a few buckets of salt water, he added in a lower tone from my ear. I left Mr. Mugridge on deck in the hands of a couple of grinning sailors who had been told off for the purpose. Mr. Mugridge was sleepily sputtering that he was a gentleman's son, but as I descended the companion stairs to clear the table, I heard him shriek as the first bucket of water struck him. Wolf Arson was counting his winnings. One hundred and eighty-five dollars even, he said aloud. Just as I thought. That beggar came aboard without a cent. And what you have won is mine, sir, I said mildly. He favored me with a quizzical smile. Hump, I have studied some grammar in my time, and I think your tenses are tangled. Was mine, 
you should have said. Not is mine. It is a question not of grammar, but of ethics, I answered. It was possibly a minute before he spoke. You know, Hump, he said, with a slow seriousness which had in it an indefinable strain of sadness. That this is the first time I have heard the word ethics in the mouth of a man. You and I are the only men on the ship who know its meaning. At one time in my life, he continued after another pause, I dreamed that I might someday talk with men who use such language, that I might lift myself out of the place of life in which I had been born and hold conversation and mingle with men who talked about just such things as ethics. And this is the first time I have ever heard the word pronounced. Which is all, by the way, for you are wrong. It is a question neither of grammar nor ethics, but of fact. I understand, I said. The fact is that you have the money. His face brightened. He seemed pleased at my perspicacity. But it is avoiding the real question, I continued, which is one of right. Ah, he remarked with a wry pucker in his mouth. I say you still believe in such things as right and wrong. But don't you? At all? I demanded. Not the least bit. Might is right, and that is all there is to it. Weakness is wrong, which is a very poor way of saying that it is good for oneself to be strong and evil for oneself to be weak. Or, better yet, it is pleasurable to be strong because of the profits, painful to be weak because of the penalties. Just now, the possession of this money is a pleasurable thing. It is good for one to possess it. Being able to possess it, I wrong myself and the life that is in me if I give it to you and forego the pleasure of possessing it. But you wrong me by withholding it, I objected. Not at all. One man cannot wrong another man. He can only wrong himself. As I see it, I do wrong always when I consider the interests of others. Don't you see? How can two particles of the yeast wrong each other by striving to devour each other? It is their inborn heritage to strive to devour, and to strive not to be devoured. When they depart from this, they sin. Don't you believe in altruism? I asked. He received the word as if it had a familiar ring, though he pondered it thoughtfully. Let me see. It means something about cooperation, doesn't it? Well, in a way, there has come to be a sort of connection, I answered, unsurprised by this time at such gaps in his vocabulary, which, like his knowledge, was the acquirement of a self-read, self-educated man whom no one had directed in his studies, and who had thought much and talked little or not at all. An altruistic act is an act performed for the welfare of others. It is unselfish as opposed to an act performed for self, which is selfish. He nodded his head. Oh yes, I remember it now. I ran across it in Spencer. Spencer, I cried. Have you read him? Not very much, was his confession. I understood quite a good deal of first principles but his biology took the wind out of my sails, and his psychology left me butting around in the doldrums for many a day. I honestly could not understand what he was driving at. I put it down to mental deficiency on my part, but since then I have decided that it was for want of preparation. I had no proper basis. Only Spencer and myself know how hard I have but I did get something out of his data of ethics. That's where I ran across altruism, and I remember now how it was used. I wondered what this man could have got from such a work. Spencer, I remembered enough to know that altruism was imperative to his ideal of the highest conduct. Wolf Larsen, evidently, had sifted the great philosopher's teachings, 
rejecting and selecting according to his needs and desires. What else did you run across? I asked. His brows drew in slightly with the mental effort of suitably phrasing thoughts which he had never before put into speech. I felt an elation of spirit. I was groping into his soul stuff, as he made a practice of groping in the soul stuff of others. I was exploring virgin territory. A strange, a terribly strange region was unrolling itself before my eyes. In as few words as possible, he began, Spencer puts it something like this. First, a man must act for his own benefit. To do this is to be moral and good. Next, he must act for the benefit of his children. And third, he must act for the benefit of his race. And the highest, finest right conduct, I interjected, is that which benefits at the same time the man, his children, and his race. I wouldn't stand for that, he replied. Couldn't see the necessity for it, nor the common sense. I cut out the race and the children. I would sacrifice nothing for them. It's just so much slush and sentiment. And you must see it yourself, at least for one who does not believe in eternal life. With immortality before me, altruism would be a paying business proposition. I might elevate my soul to all kinds of altitudes. But with nothing eternal before me but death, given for a brief spell this yeasty crawling and squirming which is called life, why, it would be immoral for me to perform any act that was a sacrifice. Any sacrifice that makes me lose one crawl or squirm is foolish. And not only foolish, for it is a wrong against myself and a wicked thing. I must not lose one crawl or squirm if I am to get the most out of the ferment. Nor will the eternal movelessness that is coming to me be made easier or harder by the sacrifices or selfishnesses of the time when I was yeasty in a crawl. Then you are an individualist, a materialist, and logically, a hedonist. Big words, he smiled. But what is a hedonist? He nodded agreement when I had given the definition. And you are also, I continued, a man one could not trust in the least thing where it was possible for a selfish interest to intervene. Now you're beginning to understand, he said, brightening. You are a man utterly without what the world calls morals. That's it. A man of whom to be always afraid. That's the way to put it. As one is afraid of a snake or a tiger or a shark. Now you know me, he said, and you know me as I am generally known. Other men call me wolf. You are a sort of monster, I added audaciously. A Caliban who has pondered said of us and who acts as you act in idle moments by whim and fancy. His brow clouded at the illusion. He did not understand, and I quickly learned that he did not know the poem. I'm just reading Browning, he confessed, and it's pretty tough. I haven't got very far along, and as it is, I have about lost my bearings. Not to be tiresome, I shall say that I fetched the book from his stateroom and read Caliban aloud. He was delighted. It was a primitive mode of reasoning and of looking at things that he understood thoroughly. He interrupted again and again with comment and criticism. When I finished, he had me read it over a second time, and a third. We fell into discussion, philosophy, science, evolution, religion. He betrayed the inaccuracies of the self-read man, and it must be granted the sureness and directness of the primitive mind. The very simplicity of his reasoning was its strength and his materialism was far more compelling than the subtly complex materialism of Charlie Furuseth. Not that I, a confirmed and, as Furuseth phrased it, a temperamental idealist, was to be compelled, but that Wolf Larsen stormed the last strongholds of my faith with a vigor that received respect 
while not a court of conviction. Time passed. Supper was at hand and the table not laid. I became restless and anxious, and when Thomas Mugridge glared down the companionway, sick and angry of countenance, I prepared to go about my duties. But Wolf Larsen cried out to him, Cookie, you've got to hustle tonight. I'm busy with home, and you'll do the best you can without him. And again the unprecedented was established. That night, I sat at table with the captain and the hunters while Thomas Mugridge waited on us and washed the dishes afterward. A whim, a Caliban mood of Wolf Larson's, and one I foresaw would bring me trouble. In the meantime, we talked and talked, much to the disgust of the hunters who could not understand the word. End of chapter 8 Seawolf by Jack London Chapter 9 Three days of rest, three blessed days of rest, are what I had with Wolf Larsen, eating at the captain table, and doing nothing but discuss life, literature, and the universe. The while, Thomas Mugridge fumed and raged, and did my work as well as his own. Watch out for squalls, is all I can say to you was Lewis's warning, given during a spare half-hour on deck, while Wolf Larsen was engaged in straightening out a row among the hunters. "'You can't tell what'll be happening,' Lewis went on, in response to my query for more definite information. "'The man's as contrary as our currents or water currents. You can never guess the ways of him. Tis just as you're thinking you know him, and are making a favorable slant along him that he whirls around yet ahead and comes howling down upon you and are ripping all of your fine weather sails to rags. So I was not altogether surprised when the squall foretold by Lewis smote me. We had been having a heated discussion, upon life of course, and grown over bold, I was passing stiff strictures upon Wolf Larsen and the life of Wolf Larsen. In fact, I was vivisecting him and turning over his soul stuff as keenly and thoroughly as it was his custom to do it to others. It may be a weakness of mine that I have an incisive way of speech, but I threw all restraint to the winds and cut and slashed until the whole man of him was snarling. The dark sunbronze of his face went black with wrath, his eyes were ablaze. There was no clearness or sanity in nothing but the terrific rage of a madman. It was the wolf in him that I saw, and a mad wolf at that. He sprang from me with a half-roar gripping my arm. I had steeled myself to brazen it out, though I was trembling inwardly. But the enormous strength of the man was too much for my fortitude. He had gripped me by the biceps with his single hand, and when that grip tightened, I wilted and shrieked aloud. My feet went out from under me. I simply could not stand upright and endure the agony. The muscles refused their duty. The pain was too great. My biceps were being crushed to a pulp. He seemed to recover himself for a lucid gleam came into his eyes, and he relaxed his hold with a short laugh that was more like a growl. I fell to the floor feeling very faint, while he sat down, lighted a cigar, and watched me as a cat watches a mouse. As I writhed about, I could see in his eyes that curiosity I had so often noted, that wonder and perplexity, that questing, that everlasting query of his as to what it was all about. I finally crawled to my feet and ascended the companion stairs. Fair weather was over and there was nothing left but to return to the galley. My left arm was numb, as though paralyzed, and days passed before I could use it, while weeks went by before the last stiffness and pain went out of it. And he had done nothing but put his hand upon my arm and squeeze. There had been no wrenching or jerking. 
He had just closed his hand with a steady pressure. What he might have done, I did not fully realize till next day, when he put his head into the galley and, as a sign of renewed friendliness, asked me how my arm was getting on. It might have been worse, he smiled. I was peeling potatoes. He picked one up from the pan. It was fair-sized, firm, and unpeeled. He closed his hand upon it, squeezed, and the potato squirted out between his fingers in mushy streams. The pulpy remnant he dropped back into the pan and turned away, and I had a sharp vision of how it might have fared with me had the monster put his real strength upon me. But the three days' rest was good in spite of it all for it had given my knee the very chance it needed. It felt much better. The swelling had materially decreased, and the cap seemed descending into its proper place. Also, the three days' rest brought the trouble I had foreseen. It was plainly Thomas Muggeridge's intention to make me pay for those three days. He treated me vilely, cursed me continually, and heaped his own work upon he even ventured to raise his fist to me, but I was becoming animal-like myself, and I snarled in his face so terribly that it must have frightened him back. It is no pleasant picture I can conjure up of myself, Humphrey Van Waden, in that noisome ship's galley, crouched in a corner over my task, my face raised to the face of the creature about to strike me, my lips lifted and snarling like a dog's, my eyes gleaming with fear and helplessness, and the courage that comes of fear and helplessness. I do not like the picture. It reminds me too strongly of a rat in a trap. I do not care to think of it, but it was elective, for the threatened blow did not descend. Thomas Muggridge backed away, glaring as hatefully and viciously as I glared. A pair of beasts is what we were, penned together and showing our teeth. He was a coward, afraid to strike me because I had not quailed sufficiently in advance. So he chose a new way to intimidate me. There was only one galley knife that, as a knife, amounted to anything. This, through many years of service and wear, had acquired a long, lean blade. It was unusually cruel-looking, and at first I had shuddered every time I used it. The cook borrowed a stone from Johansen and proceeded to sharpen the knife. He did it with great ostentation, glancing significantly at me the while. He wetted it up and down all day long. Every odd moment he could find, he had the knife and stone out and was wetting away. The steel acquired a razor edge. He tried it with the ball of his thumb or across the nail. He shaved hairs from the back of his hand, glanced along the edge with microscopic acuteness, and found, or feigned that he found, always, a slight inequality in its edge somewhere. Then he would put it on the stone again and wet, wet wet, till I could have laughed aloud. It was so very ludicrous. It was also serious, for I learned that he was capable of using it, that under all his cowardice there was a courage of cowardice like mine that would impel him to do the very thing his whole nature protested against doing, and was afraid of doing. Cookie sharpening his knife for hump! was being whispered about among the sailors, and some of them twitted him about it. This he took in good part, and was really pleased, nodding his head with direful foreknowledge and mystery, until George Leach, the erstwhile cabin boy, ventured some rough pleasantry on the subject. Now it happened that Leach was one of the sailors told off to douse Mugridge after his game of cards with the captain. Leach had evidently done his task with a thoroughness that Mugridge had not forgiven. For words followed, and evil names involving smirched ancestress. Mugridge menaced with the knife he was sharpening for me. 
Leach laughed and hurled more of his Telegraph Hill Billingsgate, and before either he or I knew what had happened, his right arm had been ripped open from elbow to wrist by a quick slash of the knife. The cook backed away, a fiendish expression on his face, the knife held before him in a position of defense. But Leach took it quite calmly, though blood was spouting upon the deck as generously as water from a fountain. I'm going to get to you, Cookie, he said, and I'll get you hard, and I won't be in no hurry about it. You'll be without that knife when I come for you. So saying, he turned and walked quietly forward. Mugridge's face was livid with fear at what he had done and at what he might expect sooner or later from the man he had stabbed. But his demeanor toward me was more ferocious than ever. In spite of his fear at the reckoning he must expect to pay for what he had done, he could see that it had been an object lesson to me, and he became more domineering and exultant. Also, there was a lust in him, akin to madness, which had come with sight of the blood he had drawn. He was beginning to see red in whatever direction he looked. The psychology of it sadly tangled, and yet I could read the workings of his mind as clearly as though it were a printed book. Several days went by, the ghost still foaming down the trades, and I could swear I saw madness growing in Thomas Mugridge's eyes. And I confess that I became afraid, very much afraid. Wet, wet, wet. It went all day long. The look in his eyes as he felt the keen edge and glared at me was positively carnivorous. I was afraid to turn my shoulder to him, and when I left the galley I went out backwards, to the amusement of the sailors and hunters, who made a point of gathering in groups to witness my exit. The strain was too great. I sometimes thought my mind would give way under it. A meat thing on this ship of madmen and brutes. Every hour, every minute of my existence was in jeopardy. I was a human soul in distress, and yet no soul, fore or aft, betrayed sufficient sympathy to come to my aid. At times, I thought of throwing myself on the mercy of Wolf Larsen, but the vision of the mocking devil in his eyes that questions life and sneered at it would come strong upon me and compel me to refrain. At other times, I seriously contemplated suicide, and the whole force of my hopeful philosophy was required to keep me from going over the side in the darkness of night. Several times, Wolf Larsen tried to inveigle me into discussion, but I gave him short answers and eluded him. Finally, he commanded me to resume my seat at the captain table for a time and let the cook do my work. Then I spoke frankly telling him what I was enduring from Thomas Smugridge because of the three days of favoritism which had been shown me. Wolf Larsen regarded me with smiling eyes. So you're afraid, eh? He sneered. Yes, I said, defiantly and honestly. I am afraid. That's the way with you fellows, he cried half angrily, sentimentalizing about your immortal souls and afraid to die. At sight of a sharp knife and a cowardly cockney, the clinging of life to life overcomes all your fond foolishness. Why, my dear fellow, you will live forever. You are a god, and god cannot be killed. Cookie cannot hurt you. You are sure of your resurrection. What's there to be afraid of? You have eternal life before you. You are a millionaire in immortality and a millionaire whose fortune cannot be lost, whose fortune is less perishable than the stars, and as lasting as space or time. It is impossible for you to diminish your principle. Immortality is a thing without beginning or end. Eternity is eternity, and though you die here and now, you will go on living somewhere else and hereafter. And it is all very beautiful, this shaking off of the flesh, soaring of the imprisoned spirit. Cookie cannot hurt you. It can only give you a boost on the path you eternally must tread. Or 
If you do not wish to be boosted just yet, why not boost Cookie? According to your ideas, he too must be an immortal millionaire. You cannot bankrupt him. His paper will always circulate at par. You cannot diminish the length of his living by killing him, for he is without beginning or end. He's bound to go on living somewhere, somehow. Then boost him, stick a knife in him, and let his spirit free. As it is, it's in a nasty prison, and you'll do him only a kindness by breaking down the door. And who knows? It may be a very beautiful spirit that will go soaring up into the blue from that ugly carcass. Boost him along, and I'll promote you to his place. And he's getting $45 a month. It was plain that I could look for no help or mercy from Wolf Larsen. Whatever was to be done, I must do for myself, and out of the courage of fear, I evolved the plan of fighting Thomas Mugridge with his own weapons. I borrowed a whetstone from Johansson. Lewis, the boat steerer, had already begged me for condensed milk and sugar. The lazarette, where such delicacies were stored, was situated beneath the cabin floor. Watching my chance, I stole five cans of the milk, and that night, when it was Lewis's watch on deck, I traded them with him for a dirk as lean and cruel-looking as Tom Smugridge's vegetable knife. It was rusty and dull, but I turned the grindstone while Lewis gave it an edge. I slept more soundly than usual that night. Next morning after breakfast, Thomas Smugridge began his wet, wet, wet. I glanced warily at him for I was on my knees, taking the ashes from the stove. When I returned from throwing them overside, he was talking to Harrison, whose honest yokel's face was filled with fascination and wonder. Yes, Mugridge was saying, and what does his worship do but give me two years in Reading? But blind me if I cared. The other mug was fixed plenty. Should have seen him. Knife, just like this. I stuck it in, like it to soft butter, and away he squealed was better than a two-penny gaff. He shot a glance in my direction to see if I was taking it in, and went on. I didn't mean it, Tommy, he was sniffling. So help me God, I didn't mean it. I'll fix your blood he will right, I says, and kept right after him. I cut him in ribbons, that's what I did. And he is squealing all the time. Once he got his hand on a knife and tried to hold it. Had his fingers around it. But I pulled it true, cut to the bone. Oh, he was a sight, I can tell you. A call from the mate interrupted the gory narrative and Harrison went aft. Mugridge sat down on the raised threshold to the galley and went on with his knife sharpening. I put the shovel away and calmly sat down on the coal box facing him. He favored me with a vicious stare. Still calmly, though my heart was going pit-a-pat, I pulled out Lewis's dirk and began to wet it on the stone. I had looked for almost any sort of explosion on the Cockney's part, but to my surprise he did not appear aware of what I was doing. He went on wetting his knife. So did I. And for two hours we sat there face to face, wet, 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 till the news of it spread abroad, and half the ship's company was crowding the galley doors to see the sight. Encouragement and advice were freely tendered, and Jack Horner, the quiet, self-spoken hunter who looked as though he would not harm a mouse, advised me to leave the ribs alone and to thrust upward for the abdomen at the same time giving what he called the Spanish twist to the knife. Leech, his bandaged arm prominently to the fore, begged me to leave a few remnants of the cook for him. And Wolf Larsen paused once or twice at the break of the poop to glance curiously at what must have been to him a stirring and crawling of the yeasty thing he knew his life. And I make free to say that for the time being, life assumed the same sordid values to me. There was nothing pretty about it, nothing divine. Only two cowardly moving things that sat wetting steel upon stone and a group of other moving things 
cowardly and otherwise, that looked on. Half of them, I am sure, were anxious to see us shedding each other's blood. It would have been entertainment, and I do not think there was one who would have interfered had we closed in a death struggle. On the other hand, the whole thing was laughable and childish. Wet, wet, wet. Humphrey Van Waden sharpening his knife in a ship's galley and trying its edge with his thumb. Of all situations, this was the most inconceivable. I know that my own kind could not have believed it possible. I had not been called Sissy Van Waden all my days without reason, and that Sissy Van Waden should be capable of doing this thing was a revelation to Humphrey Van Waden, who knew not whether to be exultant or ashamed. But nothing happened. At the end of two hours, Thomas Muggridge put away knife and stone and held out his hand. What's the good of my can only show ourselves for them mugs? he demanded. They don't love us, and bloody well glad they'd be a seeing us cutting our throats. You're not off bad, ump. You got spunk, as your yanks say, and I like you in a way. So, come on, shike. Coward that I might be, I was less a coward than he. It was a distinct victory I had gained, and I refused to forego any of it by shaking his detestable hand. All right, he said pridelessly, take it or leave it. I'll like you nonetheless for it. And to save his face, he turned fiercely upon the onlookers. Get out of my galley doors, you bloomin' swabs. This command was reinforced by a steaming kettle of water, and at sight of it the sailors scrambled out of the way. This was a sort of victory for Thomas Mugridge, and enabled him to accept more gracefully the defeat I had given him, though, of course, he was too discreet to attempt to drive the hunters away. I see Cookie's finish, I heard Smoke say to Horner. You bet, was the reply. Hump runs the galley from now on, and Cookie pulls in his horns. Mugridge heard and shot a swift glance at me, but I gave no sign that the conversation had reached me. I had not thought my victory was so far-reaching and complete, but I resolved to let go nothing I had gained. As the days went by, Smoke's prophecy was verified. The Cockney became more humble and slavish to me than even to Wolf Larsen. I mistered him and served him no longer washed no more greasy pots, and peeled no more potatoes. I did my own work, and my own work only, and when and in what fashion I saw fit. Also, I carried the dirk in a sheath at my hip, sailor fashion, and maintained towards Thomas Mugridge a constant attitude which was composed of equal parts of domineering, insult, and contempt. End of chapter 9